If you've listened to me talk um, enough over the years here at the river, you know that I really have a, I enjoy cars. I enjoy um, uh, watching shows about cars, reading about cars, looking at cars, especially cars that are um, sort of unique and um, uh, special or exotic or custom or all those other sorts of things. Going to car shows is um, certainly a pleasure. And this past week, um, as I was reading some stuff online, I noticed an article about um, this car. It's quite a car. Um, it has this name. It's on your outline. It's called the Bugatti Voiture Noire. And it's obviously from Europe. And if you um, know the language of French, you're going to just see how super exotic the name of this car is. Voiture Noire, Bugatti is the name of the company that makes it. Um, Voiture Noire in French has this exotic thing. It actually means black car. So Bugatti made the Voiture Noire, and there's only one of them on the planet. There's only one. And it has the distinctive of being the most expensive production car to date. If you wanted to buy this car, of which there is only one, it has already been sold to the former chairman of the Porsche company. So you can see the circles that you're walking through, walking in. Um, you would have to shell out somewhere north of $12 million. $12 million for a car. It supplants Bugatti's previous record, which was the Bugatti Chiron at $6.5 million, which supplanted the Bugatti Veyron at $4.2 million. I've only seen in my life one Bugatti Veyron. I've never seen a Chiron. I don't expect live to ever see this car in my lifetime. I would love to. You know what I'd really love to do? I'd really love to get in it and drive it 100 miles. It would probably only take me about 15 minutes. Car goes 200, over 250 miles an hour. Zero to 60 miles an hour in less than three seconds. It has 16 cylinders. Most of your cars are dealing with four to six. Multiply that by four or, you know, two and a bit, and you get the power of this car. It's an incredible car. I was talking to Brian Feinrich, who um, was on the uh, electric uh, guitar this morning, and he, um, tests, he sat in some Teslas recently and was just amazed by these beautiful Teslas that cost almost $100,000. And I reminded him, you would need to buy 120 of those to equal this. Now, here's my question this morning. How many of you expect to drive this car in your lifetime? None of you. In fact, I expect that none of you will ever see it. There probably only will be a couple people who will ever drive this car. In fact, if we were to give the threshold of 25 miles driven in this car, the number of people who would be on that list would be incredibly exclusive. In fact, I don't expect that people driving this car further than 25 miles, that that list would be more than three people. My expectation, actually, is that this car will never drive more in its entire existence more than about 5,000 miles. That's what happens to cars like this. 
They are spectacular. I would argue that you would, you would be hard-pressed to find a more spectacular car on this planet. is exclusive to only one, two, maybe three people and is not available to anyone else. This morning, we want to spend time thinking about how God lives into the act, absolute opposite with us. How the most spectacular thing on the planet is offered to all, is free to everyone, and is available to every person sitting in this room. We're going to do that by spending time thinking about O little town of Bethlehem. As we do that, let's pray for God's blessing and presence on our time. Father, you are so very good. In fact, I think that word applies. You are spectacular. You give us love. You give us grace. You give us your presence. You give us hope. You give us life. And we pray, Father, that as we gather here this morning around your word, that we are reminded of this spectacularness that is you is open to all of us. And sometimes that comes in the most simple of base and basic of things. Lord, in our reception of that truth, may it transform us, may it move our hearts, our hearts to understand more that what we have to give, as simple and basic as it might be, is enough. In fact, is more than enough to see your kingdom grow, to multiply your grace and your love in this world. And Lord, as we live in to the basic, simple stuff, that we can see the spectacular work of the Holy Spirit in Jesus in our world and in our lives. We pray, Father, in Jesus' name that you meet us here. Speak to us through your Holy Spirit, which is present because of the work of Jesus. We pray these things all in his name. Amen. I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles, if you maybe are unaware of where we are, go to the back of the Bible, go about a third from the back, you'll hit the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Obviously, Matthew is the first of those Gospels in the New Testament, and we're going to look at chapter 2, which is, of course, traditionally a Christmas story, but it encapsulates a little bit what we understand about the town of Bethlehem, and certainly the story doesn't just speak to a Christmas time, it speaks to us here today, I want to begin by reading the first two verses of Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who had been born, has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, first of all, who are the Magi? Um, lots of conjecture on that. Um, what we do know is Magi, really translated, is wise men. These are people who are learned scholars. And remember, this is not a time of education in the world. These are exclusive folks in the sense that being offered a significant education that can be um, something that they, they learn stuff. They learn stuff about the stars and the heavens, obviously, because they've seen the star and um, understand a little bit its significance. Um, they obviously have some wealth. We know that because at the end of the story, they offer gifts, and those gifts are of significant value. 
So these are people, they come from the east. Again, lots of conjecture where. Are we talking about areas like Saudi Arabia? Are we talking about in the regions like India or even ultimately China? There's lots of possibilities there. There's lots of conjecture over the years. I don't want to dig into that. But what I do want to say is these people are people who bought into God's story. And they invested significantly in God's story simply by their actions to live into one activity. And you see that there in verse 2. They came to what? Worship him. So worship obviously has power in this story. And these people are led to follow a star because then to them a star signifies something significant, the birth of the king. And so they go to where they should go. Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is obviously the capital of Israel, and these being learned, wise men would know that Jerusalem was the capital, the place where the king dwelt. And so they came understanding that if there was a king born, that it would be in that place, Jerusalem, the place of kings. It's understandable. It's also understandable because Bethlehem actually really isn't that far from Jerusalem. Anybody know how far? Six miles, depending on where you are. The border actually is just over three miles, but you're talking six miles from city center to city center, about three miles from border of town to Jerusalem. Very close. So if they saw a star appearing over Jerusalem, it's certainly appropriate that they thought, oh, maybe maybe the star got it a little bit wrong, got a little bit off, and instead we should go to Jerusalem, but they find out really quickly No, that's not the story. Jerusalem is not the place where this story happens. The story happens elsewhere. Verse 3. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, Herod hears a story from the Magi, and he gets a little fired up. There's actually a reason why Herod gets fired up. This is not the first time that somebody has tried to take his job. In fact, if you look at the life of Herod, if you look at the history, you will find out more than a couple people tried to get him out of power. So for him to wonder whether or not the Magi coming, naming another king to, to uh, take his place, he, <coughs> he had experience with this. In fact, one of the people, you've heard her name before. She actually tried to get Herod out. Anyone heard the name Cleopatra? Okay, Egyptian lady. She's a ruler in Egypt. She married uh, or got connected to a very powerful Roman person. His name was Mark Antony. Cleopatra and Mark Antony, that's a pretty big power couple. And they decide that Cleopatra, who has some relatives who are technically sort of kind of in the line for Israel, should be in place instead of Herod. So she tries to make that happen. And she's got a trump card being the Roman Empire. So... Herod's had to deal with this before. And for him to wonder whether or not there is this new king who has come in order to take his throne is something that you can well imagine when he was, what was the word? He was disturbed. 
It's a familiar feeling for him. But he's also, by seeking out the persecution and ultimately the death of Jesus, another king, he's actually living into some family history. Okay? First of all, Herod is not of one Jewish line. That's the line of Jacob. He's of another Jewish line. It's Edomites. Okay? E-D-O-M-I-T-E-S. Why is the line of Edomites significant? For that, we got to go way back. Genesis chapter 3, verse 23. Herod is an Edomite. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 23. Did I have that? No, no excuse me. Genesis 32, verse 3. I got my colon wrong there. That sounded horrible. Genesis chapter 32, verse 3. Jacob, this is Jacob and Esau, Jacob the two brothers, they're not getting along because Jacob stole the blessing. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. So out of that line of Esau comes Herod, who is an Edomite. Meaning that Herod is living into, still, as a people, getting back at those who have stolen his blessing. Jacob stole Esau's blessing. Jesus is trying to steal his blessing. And he's going to stop it, if at all possible. He's living into family history here. Now, verse 6 in the text of Matthew chapter 2 highlights some things about Jerusalem that are important to our story too. It says this, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least of the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. In essence, what that prophetic word is saying is, Bethlehem, you're not the least, but you're close. Small, little, nothing town. Today, the city of Bethlehem is about 25,000 people. That was not so in the time of Jesus. In fact, it's not unrealistic to think that in the time of Jesus, this is a town of probably less, no more certainly than 250 people. A little nothing of a town. It did have one claim to fame, and that is Rachel's tomb was in Bethlehem, but that's all. Rachel from the Old Testament way back, way back in Genesis. Nothing else. There was really nothing else holding up Bethlehem as this important town. So you can imagine that a person like Herod or other people who are wise, like the Magi, or the other power players in Israel would have thought, what in the world that is good can come from Bethlehem? In fact, we as a culture live into that. We live into that regularly. Oh, um, you know, if somebody's talking, if you're talking about your own history. Oh, where are you from? Oh, I'm from some little nothing small town in the middle of nowhere. I'm from that sort of town, Smith Falls. Little nothing town. The town that the railroad forgot. And there's nothing to it. In fact, we, we hold up when good things happen in small towns. There's a movie recently that actually highlights that. It's called McFarland, USA. Anyone seen the film? This film is actually a little important to me. 
Because when I was um, up in the Central Valley, this is a Central Valley town just off the 99. If you drive through the drudgery of Highway 99 up California, the San Joaquin Valley, you will, not far after Bakersfield, hit McFarland. And McFarland is really this little nothing of a town. It has a car dealership, a gas station, a stop sign, a little mini mart, and not a whole lot else. It's a central place where some people come, usually a farming community, farming, uh, different farming folks will come in, get some stuff, get some fuel, get some supplies. It does have a high school, and that high school was a high school that my teams, that I coached soccer, played against. We beat them every time, by the way, when I was in high school, but when I was, or when I, when I was coaching high school, but when I was there, we never ever, as a school, beat their cross-country team, and there's a reason for that. They were known for years as cross-country juggernauts, and this film by Disney, McFarland USA, tells the story of this coach who came into the community and began to raise up a group of runners for the cross-country team. And it tells the story of these folks' families and their living situations and some of the challenges they lived in. And it's a wonderful story, and it certainly was a, a great source of pride for this community for a long time. Their cross-country team was this outstanding group of runners. They were beat years, uh, several years ago, actually, by the school that I used to coach at in cross country. But we hold this up. If McFarland, if the team was in Riverside, no one would tell the story. If the team was in LA, depending on what kind, what place and what time and what environment in LA, we probably wouldn't hear the story. But because this team comes from this little know-nothing, little, little bump in the road town, all of a sudden it gets highlighted as this incredibly inspirational story of nothing rising up to something very significant. That's Bethlehem. There's nothing there. There's no reason for it to be valued. In fact, what is it known for? Rachel's tomb and one other thing. It actually comes in its name. Its name is Bethlehem in Hebrew, Beit Lachem. Now, if you were listening several weeks ago when we talked about Bait El, you know Bait stands for what? House. Bait is house. So anytime you see Beth, you're thinking house. Not when you look at our worship director, but when you see, think of anything else, all right? Name, Beth, house, and in here, Rachem is Hebrew for bread. This is a house of bread. Bakers live here. Basic stuff. Who eats bread? Anyone here eat bread? Almost all of you are at some point going to put up your hand for, yeah, I eat bread. It's basic. It's simple. Bethlehem is basic, and it's simple, and it offers the basic and the simple. That's the story of Bethlehem. But now it becomes the central focus of this huge spiritual struggle that goes on in the world for our benefit. Herod's going to lay a trap, verse 7. And Herod called the Magi secretly, found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report him to me 
so that I too may go to worship him. So Herod's setting things up. He's got devious plans. He doesn't tell the Magi, but he at least wants to know where is this person? And to his credit, Herod doesn't want to kill a lot of people. He just wants to kill one. If the Magi were to come to him and say, this is where we found the child, he would go and have that child disappear. But instead, the Magi don't listen to him because they had something else in mind. What was that thing that they had in mind? Why did they go to Bethlehem to find the king and worship him? Find the king and... Worship is a distraction from being a part of evil things. Say that again. Worship is a distraction from being part of evil things. How many of us need that this morning? How many of you are sitting in this place even struggling with something going on in your life? There's evil present. Maybe it even consumes you. There's sin in your world. There's sin in your experience. There's struggle that you're burdened with. And if nothing else, you come into this place and we are part of worship songs. We're a part of prayer. We're a part of learning God's word. And if nothing else, it distracts us from the evil that is present in our world. In this story, that distraction saves the life of Christ and keeps the story going. In our lives... What does the worship that we live into then distract us from? And it's interesting. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. You know what that is? It's worship. Meaning, if you and I are obedient to God's call to love Him, worship Him, There's no place for evil. There's no place for sin. It's when we instead move away from loving the Lord our God with everything that evil and sin has the ability to creep in. Let's continue verse 9. After they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had... um, and, this, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down and they worshipped him. And they opened their treasures, presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, myrrh. Having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Now, we, of course, were so glad that the story has this story because that means that Mary and Joseph receive the Magi, get the gifts, and those gifts really equip them to live. In fact, that's God's provision because Mary and Joseph are going to have to take off, which they do not long after. They have to go to Egypt, and while they're in Egypt, something has to maintain them, something has to keep them going. Certainly, Joseph was a carpenter, so maybe he could find work, but gold, frankincense, and myrrh would also help. So God's provision is here in this story. We also see that the Magi are warned, and Jesus still survives, and the story is better than it could have been. It certainly has some lament. Why? Because children die. 
Herod sends his soldiers into Bethlehem to kill all the boys who are two years and younger. And certainly that is something worthy of our lament. But the salvation of the world story in Jesus can continue. And I'm grateful for that. But I again want to highlight what this happening in Bethlehem speaks to us. Why is Bethlehem so important for this absolutely pivotal part of the biggest spiritual struggle, the biggest spiritual battle in the history of time. Well, here's what it says to me. Bethlehem being the house of bread that has nothing else except a tomb of Rachel in it represents the basic and the simple. It represents just the normal stuff, house of bread. Bread is something that everyone has access to. Almost all of us sometime today, in some way, shape, or form, we're going to have something bread-like in our life. It's offered to everybody. It's available to all of us. Not only that, but it's a city that provides. It gives something. That is important. What do we say? We say even a person who has nothing, hopefully they have what? Bread and water. We say that bread can actually keep you alive, which it can for a certain period of time. It's something that does provide some level of life. God is using something basic and simple and something that provides life, this little town to offer himself to the world. And out of this little town comes hope. Out of this town comes love. Out of this town comes grace. And that thing is available to all. Remember at the beginning, we talked about this incredible car, this most spectacular of cars that I would long to drive in for even 25 miles. I would love to have that experience, but it will never be offered to me. This most spectacular of things is never offered to me. But here in our story, the most spectacular of all things, Jesus, is offered in the most basic and simple ways so that all might experience it. It's for all of you. So what's the payoff? I have sat with people numerous times in my ministry, especially people who are older or people who have some sort of infirmity or some sort of specific challenge in their lives. And they will say to me this phrase, they will say to me, I don't feel like I have anything to offer to the kingdom of God. Anyone ever thought that? I know some of you have because I've talked to you. Or you think that what you have to offer really isn't that great. Oh yeah, I can give $20 in the offering plate, but that's not the same as somebody giving $1,000. Or, you know, I can teach um, a couple kids up in children's ministry. I can teach them some things about who Jesus is, but I could never do what Pastor Scott does up in front. Or, you know, I can, do, I, I can do something like I can, I can um, uh, blow the parking lot and make sure there's no leaves here. But I, I could never, uh, you know, do what Beth does behind the piano and lead worship for us. And in some ways, we create then a hierarchy of what the kingdom of God looks like. I could never do what Ross and Sandy Cooper do. 
So that's something that, that they must be about real kingdom work. What I offer is, is sort of kind of maybe. But here we have in this story about Bethlehem, this basic and simple place offering only what it can. It can offer bread. The bread of life. It can offer provision. Something that everyone needs. And it becomes the central part of the story for the biggest spiritual struggle in the universe. For us to hear that for ourselves and be able to say, what I have to offer may be basic and simple. But it can change the world. Your prayers matter. I've had some, especially senior saints who are shut in, say to me, Pastor Scott, I can't do anything, but I can pray. Don't say but in that context. You say, Pastor Scott, I can serve the kingdom because I can pray. Because that prayer has power. It has power to change me as you pray for me. It has power to change this church as you pray, pray for this church. It has power to change the world as you pray for the world. Living into what the simple, the basic that you have to offer can change and dramatically alter the world around you. You think to yourself, I don't have $1,000 to give. All I can give is $1. Let me tell you a little quick story. One of the most transformational conversations that I've ever had with an individual happened at Jack in the Box, which is a bad place to go if you're eating stuff, right? Bad place. But here's what happened. I was, I'd forgotten my wallet, this particular meeting, and I had one dollar and I had, I think, a quarter in my car. I dug. You know, you do that. You go through the cushions. You find all the stuff. I found a buck and a quarter. You know what you could get, not anymore I don't think, but you could at one time get at Jack in the Box for a buck and a quarter. You could get two disgusting, horrible tacos. But you could get them for a buck and a quarter. And for an hour and a half, over two disgusting buck and a quarter tacos... There was a transformational conversation between two people about the kingdom of God, about the grace of Jesus Christ in their life. You got a buck in your wallet and you give it, add a quarter and a life can be changed. You don't even need to add a quarter. What you have matters. What you offer matters. What you give matters because that's the story of God. He says that story over and over again. Listen to these words. And maybe you'll recognize them from somewhere. Dust. Small stones. Bread. Juice. Water. Sheep. Clay pots. Ram horns. A widow's mite. Thorns, two pieces of wood nailed together as a cross. The basic and the simple things that God has used over and over and over again to change 
his story. What have you got? Because what you have can be a part of God's work of transforming the whole world around you. Would you pray with me? What we have, Lord, we give. May not be much in our mind. But if it is given with generosity and with full hearts, Lord, it is more than enough. Because you are the God of the extraordinary. You are the God of the spectacular. Who takes the simple and the basic. And with those simple and basic things, transforms the world. You take a place that bakes bread and make it the central part of your story. You take a little baby in the rudest of places, in a stable, in a manger. And out of that story comes the hope of the world in Jesus Christ. And for those, Lord, who are struggling, whether or not that hope is offered to them in Jesus, Lord, may, they, may you break through. May you speak to a heart and a mind that longs and needs to know that that truth is for them. It's offered freely. Come. Come to the God who does provide. The God who loves. The God who offers the greatest gift that could ever be imagined. Lord, you do that then in our lives as well. You take those things that we do give. And out of those things comes the spectacular. Lord, may we understand that no matter what it is that you have blessed us with, no matter what it is that we have to offer, that if, Lord, done in love and in worship of you so that we might be distracted from the sin and the evil and the challenges and the struggles of this world, that as we live into that, Lord, your kingdom can grow in incredible and new ways. Lord, may we submit to you in that. Pray these things in Jesus. Amen.